Good evening, and thank you all for coming. Uh, we have a great panel tonight. We've got Jay Jaffe, who is at 1199, who is going to give you the perspective of a lawyer who represents labor unions. And then to Jay's right, we've got George Schwab of Krauss and Zekleski, and George will give you the perspective of a plaintiff's lawyer. And then to his right, we've got Ann Dana from Safarth Shaw, and she's got an extensive ADA practice, and she's going to give you the perspective of a lawyer who represents employers. And I want to thank all of the panelists for coming, and I want to thank the Labor and Employment Committee and its chair, Catherine Greenberg, and I want to thank you. But most of all, I want to thank Randy Cohen, who has done a fantastic job of conceiving of the idea for this panel and of finding the panelists and of both thinking the big thoughts that were necessary for the panel to happen but also making the trains run on time and making sure that we were all on the conference calls and also doing this while running a really busy solo practice. So really, thank you, Randy. Um, my name is Hannah Kolko, and I'm at Meyer Swazi, and I am a labor union lawyer, and I also have a cannabis practice. And I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes giving you kind of a 30,000-foot overview of the state of cannabis law in the United States. And the basic conundrum is the fact that while 30 states at this point have legalized cannabis in one way or another as a matter of state law, every bit of the plant-touching industry, and so that's putting plants into the dirt and processing them into oil and distributing the oil and putting it into vape cartridges and selling it, all of that violates a federal law called the Controlled Substances Act. That is a Nixon-era statute. Nixon is gone, but his statute is still with us. And you've got to understand that the Controlled Substances Act applies nationwide. And under it, all of it, cultivation, processing, distribution, sale, is a felony. And the penalties aren't hypothetical. The penalties include life imprisonment. And the most recent estimate I saw were that there were about 11,000 people in federal prisons for cannabis offenses. So the Controlled Substances Act is not a dead letter, and every day there are people languishing in prison as a result of con convictions under that statute. Um, it's not a topic for this, for this presentation, but that statute also has very serious civil asset forfeiture uh, provisions. And of course, civil asset forfeiture imposes a giant burden on the respondent and also enables the government to have a much lower burden of proof. And so the CSA is a serious statute. Uh, there is a Supreme Court case called U.S. versus Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative. And in that case, the court ruled that compliance with state law is not a recognized defense to a CSA uh, cannabis prosecution. So regardless of what the law in any of those states provide, um, if you do anything touching the plant, you are doing it in violation of federal law. And at the very least, there is a theoretical uh, risk of prosecution. Now, so the question is, um, how did the federal government square this circle? Because, don't forget, we've got 30 states that either through legislation or through uh, voter initiative made cannabis legal one way or the other. Well, 
My first question is, since we're uh, doing it about labor and employment law, how did the NLRB square the circle? What did the NLRB do? Because cannabis at this point is a relatively big business. The numbers that I saw for 2017 were that it, the state legal cannabis market was about $8 billion. And in lots of states, there are enterprises that are farming cannabis and processing it and distributing it. And they have employees and the employees sometimes want to uh, bring in a union. And so what did the NLRB do? Well, the NLRB issued an advice memo in October of 2013 in a case called Northeast Patients Group. And that arises out of a ULP that was filed against a dispensary in Maine. And what the NLRB advice memo said was that we, the NLRB, will assume jurisdiction over the industry and the NLRB will process ULPs and it will process our case petitions. And although the new NLRB general counsel has been pretty aggressive in rescinding past advice memos and past GC memos, this GC memo, to my knowledge, when I checked this morning, is still in effect. And I can tell you that the NLRB will process ULPs and our case petitions involving cannabis employers. So at least from the point of view of the NLRB, B, the act in whole applies to employees of companies in the cannabis industry. Um, an interesting note, the NLRB, as you know, if you're an NLRB nerd, requires some connection with interstate commerce. And there was a Supreme Court case called Reich. And in Reich, the issue was whether Congress had the power to regulate cannabis, assuming that all of it was produced in state and consumed in state. And the Supreme Court said, yes, Congress has the power to regulate cannabis. And so I doubt that there would be a successful commerce challenge to an NLRB charge arising out of the cannabis industry in light of the right case. So that's how the NLRB resolved the issue. How did the US Department of Justice resolve the issue? Well, there is the Cole Memo. And the Cole memo was something that was in effect between August 29 of 2013 and January 4 of 2018. Uh, James Cole was a high-ranking DOJ official, and he issued a memo on behalf of the DOJ in August of 2013. And the critical thing to understand about the Cole memo is that it was not a statute and that it was not a regulation. What the Cole memo said was, it said to members of federal law enforcement, so primarily U.S. attorneys, it said, as a matter of discretion, you should not initiate CSA prosecutions of businesses and people operating in compliance with state medical cannabis laws as long as their operation does not implicate federal enforcement priorities. And the only relevant federal enforcement priorities for our purposes is what people refer to as diversion. Diversion, from the point of view of the federal government, is cannabis that is produced legally in state A ending up in state B. And what the federal government and what law enforcement officials care about is they don't want cannabis grown in California ending up in other states. And if you think for one minute about the economic incentives of a producer, you can think why this might be a problem. Let's assume that you're a producer in California operating lawfully of vape cartridges. 
And let's assume that you can fill your in-state demand by operating from 8 a.m. till 3 p.m. But you've got a factory, you've got your sunk fixed costs, and your economic incentives are to maximize your capacity. And so you just as soon operate from 8 a.m. till 11 p.m. And if you could ship it out of state, you have an economic incentive to do so. And I think that the risk under the Cole memo was that there would be lots of diversion and that people would end up being prosecuted. Well, the Cole memo is no more. You might have heard that we had an election in November of 2016. The president has the power to appoint a new attorney general. He appointed Jeff Sessions. Um, Jeff Sessions has a history of making statements that are hostile to the cannabis industry. It's still 1957 for him. And in January of this past year, January 4th of 2018, Attorney General Sessions, as he had the power to do, rescinded the Cole Memo. So at this point, there is no Cole Memo. And so, at least in theory, the federal government, there's no restriction on the federal government's prosecution of people operating in compliance with state law. I will also note that in the January 4, 2018 Sessions Memo, he made reference to anti-money laundering statutes. And I am not an expert at all in those statutes, but those statutes apply to people who deal with funds generated as a result of sales of materials in violation of the CSA. So clients who are considering this ought to look closely at the Jeff Sessions January 4, 2018 memo and ought to think closely about the anti-money laundering statutes because those are statutes with profound implications in addition to the CSA. So things are moving quickly. There was just a poll out today that Maggie Haberman from the New York Times tweeted about that showed that public support for legalization was up to about 65%. There are ballot initiatives coming this November uh, in Michigan for adult use and for medical use in Utah and Missouri. And part of me thinks that if Utah passes a medical use statute, the game will be over and Congress will take action. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's really well worth watching. First of all, Michigan, because it's a big state and it's a swing state. Um, and Michigan has a well-established medical industry. But also, really, Utah and Missouri, because if, if, if kind of historically conservative states can pass it, I think that it might be a showing to Congress that they need to, uh, to modify the federal law. There's been a certain dysfunction in Congress. I don't know whether they'll be able to do it, but it's at least something worth watching. So I now want to turn to our excellent panelists, and I'm going to ask them each to talk about some things of relevance. And I'm going to first talk to Jay. And Jay, if you could talk to, the, uh, to our uh, assembled crowd about the Coates case and the Knopfsinger case. And take it away, Jay. Thank you. All right. And th thank you. Um, you're a tough act to follow, but I'm going to try. Um, in a number of states prior to, prior to today, there have been cases where employees lost their jobs or had some kind of adverse action taken against them at work because of their use of medical marijuana that was lawful under the state law. And until recently, every single one of them lost. Every single one of them lost, largely on the basis of 
the Controlled Substance Act that is illegal under federal law, so we don't really care what the, um, what the state law says. Um, the most recent and probably highest profile case um, in, the, in this area is um, Coates versus Dish Network. The case came out of Colorado. Um, Coates was, um, I don't remember exactly what he did for a Dish Network, but he, um, he used a wheelchair, he was pa partially paralyzed, and he was certified under Colorado state law to use marijuana to combat the effects of the muscle spasms and, uh, and so forth uh, related to his paralysis. Um, apparently, Dish Network had a random drug testing program in place, and his number came up, and he was going to be tested, and he said, all right, I'll take the test, but um, you guys knew this when you hired me. Here's my card. Um, I'm an authorized user under the Colorado Mar Medical Marijuana Law. Of course, he tests positive. Dish Network fires him, and he, br he brings a claim against Dish Network under the state of Colorado's so-called lawful activities statute. His argument was that I am engaged in a lawful activity as defined by state law here. I have, you know, I have my card. Everything I'm doing is legal. And uh, the, uh, the court, in, in I believe a split decision, but um, this was the, uh, the decision, was that the lawful activity statute means lawful activity under any law, whether it's state law, federal, local. And they said because the use of marijuana is prohibited under federal law, then uh, the worker can take no, uh, can take no uh, refuge in the lawful activities statute. Now, that case followed um, cases um, in Washington, California, Oregon, Montana, and Michigan, all of which held you know, so something similar. Um, the Oregon one went a step further, saying that the state law that allowed for the use of medical marijuana is preempted by the, by the Controlled Substance Act. Um, I guess if you were on my side of the table, the news got a little bit better in, um, when was it? I think it was in, it was in, yeah, in 2017 in a case called, um, a case called Knopfsinger. This was a case out of Connecticut, and it wasn't a termination case. It was actually a, a failure to hire case. Uh, Knopfsinger applied for employment with, I believe it was a nursing home. Um, she had some kind of, you know, relatively high-level professional job, and the employer let her know that, you know, hey, this is, uh, you know, this looks good, just, you know, pass the, uh, the pre-employment drug screening and we're good to go. And she told them at the time that because of, uh, I think it was PTSD, she used um, marijuana that was lawful under the, uh, the Connecticut, um, I think it's called the Palliative Use of Marijuana Act, or Puma, which I think is the brand of an athletic shoe. Um, so I don't know if, that was, if they came up with the acronym first. I'm not really sure. But anyway, she was an authorized user under Puma and apparently was led to believe in no uncertain terms that this shouldn't be an issue. And she gives notice at her old job and she thinks she's going to get hired by this place. And then lo and behold, she tests positive. No real surprise there. And um, she, brings a, she brings a cause of action against, the, um, against the, the company that the nursing home was operating under, under the... Um, under the state law, under the state anti-discrimination law. And this one, for a change, the courts came out, at least you know, thus far, in denying the employer's motion for summary judgment in the, from my standpoint, the correct way. And the court took, I don't want to say pains, but the court distinguished Coates and all the other earlier cases um, by saying that this one involves a state law that has a specific anti-discrimination provision that provided employment protections for medical marijuana users. And the laws apparently on, in, in uh, Colorado, Washington, Montana, 
uh, California, Michigan, and Oregon did not, which was, um, which was interesting. And the court also, I guess taking a stab a little bit at the Oregon case, said that the Controlled Substance Act does not preempt the, uh, the state law in Connecticut. So, you know, good news for employees, but so far that's the, that's the only state where a federal court has ruled in the, um, in the employee's favor. Um, prior to that, the one silver lining that there was for the, uh, for the employee came in the Michigan case. Uh, the Michigan case from, um, trying to remember what year that 2014, was. 2014, versus Challenge Manufacturing. Thank you, my friend. Um, while, the, while the state law provided no protection against the, against the loss of the job, it did allow the employee to, and check this out, this is a, a real great thing, collect unemployment insurance. Why? Because they said that if the, if the state denies you unemployment insurance, that's, that's state action and that's something that the law covered. Oh, but your termination from your job? No, we've got nothing to say about that. Um, so go, going, going back a, a few years to, I guess, some New York City history, Lower Manhattan, everybody knows what the 1% is, right? Everyone in the room does. So here's a question. How many of you uh, know what the 6.5% uh, is? Any guesses? 6.5% is the, the percentage of, the, of American workers in the private sector that belong to unions. So if you are one of the lucky 6.5%, and you lose your job because of a positive drug test, you might have better luck. Um, there have been cases up and down that say largely other than public employers and jobs where there's like a DOT requirement for drivers or if there's some kind of safety sensitive um, position, most arbitrators have said a positive drug test is not going to be enough to fire somebody under a just cause standard. Um, some, some of the arbitrators went into the, um, the test you know, that they typically give, which is a you know, which is a urine test, where they draw the you know they draw the line at I think um, I, th I think it's about 15, uh, 15 units my, um, micrograms per, per milliliter, and they can test up to I think three hundred. Now, one arbitrator said, "Well, this person's number came out at three hundred, which means they must have been impaired." Okay, that, that that's what one arbitrator said, but another arbitrator said that, "Hey, listen." It is no more the employer's business whether somebody uses marijuana off-duty than whether he goes to church, treats his kids well, or cheats when he plays cards. So in a unionized setting, you're generally going to have uh, some better luck. So let me just jump in and make a couple of points. Thank you, Jay. First, um, actually just this past September in the Knopfsinger case, the court granted summary judgment to the plaintiff on plaintiff's claim under the federal statute. And apparently, unless they settle, that's going to go to trial on damages. So I think Knopfsinger is really, if you're going to do research on this, it's really worth your while reading the Knopfsinger decisions. The other thing that, that Jay alluded to, but, but that's really an important kind of basic scientific point to understand, and we're all uh, lawyers because we didn't want to study science, but we have to understand a little bit. Um, so the, the cannabinoids that are in cannabis, THC, CBD, and others, they're fat-soluble. What that means is when you consume cannabis, it, those chemicals come into your fat and are gradually excreted over a period of time. Alcohol, if you, if you consume a drink at 9 p.m., uh, one shot, you've pretty much excreted it by 10 p.m. Cannabis, it can take up to 30 days. So that especially a heavy user could conceivably take 30 or 45 days to clear it from his or her system. 
And so a cannabis test doesn't detect intoxication. All it does is it detects exposure. So the fact that someone tests positive only means that they were exposed. It, it, it surely, I suppose, is some modest piece of evidence that they might be intoxicated. But at the end of the day, it's not dispositive at all. And I think that when you've got a, a, an issue of fact, that is, is someone intoxicated at work, you've got to do what you normally do. You've got to have a supervisor say, I, or a coworker say, I looked at his eyes, they were bloodshot. I smelled cannabis on his clothing. He was not able to focus. That is, it's going to be an evidentiary dispute, and a positive test isn't going to give you an answer. And in the Coates case, there was no claim that the guy was intoxicated at work. Literally, the guy was in a wheelchair, was consuming lawfully, and was fired merely because he tested positive for action that was lawful under state law. So I think the Yiddish phrase for that, that was a shanda. Um, it really was an injustice. So, um, so thank you, Jay. And George, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about the New York State um, statute. Um, okay, so I think the New York State, the uh, public law 3369 was sent around to people. And I just want to make a few comments about it. Um, uh, in the main, sort of overall, the statute is not uh, a broad, the, the medicinal marijuana statute in New York is not a broad statute um, like it is in California where at least for a long time it was pretty easy to get a prescription and get medicinal marijuana. Um, I handed out um, just a few minutes ago, and there's a couple more up here if you didn't get one, the information for the Department of Health website um, about how you become eligible to obtain medicinal marijuana, in part because uh, well, I mostly represent employees, and the statute does not help an employee uh, unless you are a certified patient. Um, and to become a certified patient, if you look at the handout, which is, a, which is from the Department of Health website, to obtain uh, a certif certification to legally obtain medicinal marijuana, you have to have a certain one of the uh, enumerated um, uh, afflictions or diseases, uh, all of which are extremely serious: uh, HIV, AIDS, um, ALS, Parkinson's disease, uh, spinal cord injury, and then there's some other requirements. So it's a very uh, it's instead of leaving it to the doctor to decide who would benefit from the use of medicinal marijuana. The statute itself narrows uh, a great deal the, the, uh, how a number of people can actually get a certificate. Uh, the last time I checked, my understanding was that about between 50,000 and 60,000 patients in the state of New York have been able to become certified. And in a state that are this size, it doesn't really seem like a lot of people. Um, they've recently, they've made provisions to add um, conditions to um, the list, and if you go to the second page, uh, as of March 22nd, uh, they added chronic pain, basically, um, or pain where you cannot take, uh, where you've tried to take other uh, treatments and they haven't worked. Um, and then effective July 12th, 2018, um, there's, there's this, uh, 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 exception for uh, opioid replacement, basically, so that you can get a marijuana, <coughs> medicinal marijuana cert certificate if, if you were, for example, about to have a, a serious operation and you would be prescribed opioids, you can apparently get uh, a marijuana certification now. Um, 
But these are really, <clears throat> mostly these are very serious conditions. It's not something, if you have, for example, if you have insomnia or something like that and your doctor tells you that, you know, smoking pot in the late, early in the evening help, would help you sleep, that's not something that you're going to be able to take to a doctor and get, uh, get a certification for. Um, however, once you get your certification, um, the statute is actually is, is very helpful because it basically labels you as, uh, as disabled for the purposes of discrimination statutes. Um, now this, <coughs> really I'm referring to, as, as uh, Hanan said, the use at night and not at work. The statute actually says that it does not bar the enforcement of policy prohibiting an employee from performing his or her employment while impaired by a controlled substance. So obviously it makes sense and particularly in some of these, one of these cases, I think uh, uh, one of the uh, plaintiffs was, a, it wasn't the New York case, but the plaintiff was a forklift operator. And obviously you can't be driving around a forklift with extremely heavy things and other people around if you've, you know, if you've smoked pot that morning. But we're talking about smoking late in the, you know, in, in the evening. Um, uh, this doesn't really apply to, um, to, em to employees and to employers. But there are also important um, exceptions for the domestic relations law, the social services law, and the Family Court Act. Uh, I didn't find any cases on those. My understanding is that if someone is a certified uh, marijuana patient, that it cannot be raised to as something against you if you're trying to fight for custody of your children. Um, and there is actually a case about where someone uh, who was on probation tested positive for marijuana but was in the certification and that person did not suffer consequences because they were in the program. Um, so the law is quite helpful if you, uh, if you, if you are able to qualify. And I don't know, I, there, I understand in Albany that there has been um, some push to expand the number of conditions or to make the law um, more sort of general, but that seems to be at the moment overcome by the idea that they're just going to legalize it for recreational purposes and then anybody can get it. Now, to me, uh, <clears throat> that's not really the same thing because when, if they legalize it recreationally, that does not mean give you any protection if, you're, if you fail a drug test with your employer. Telling them that it's legal if they say that they, you can't smoke pot, they can still obviously test you, and if you don't have a certificate, telling them that it's legal and that you take it for, your, for, for insomnia isn't going to help you in that situation. Um, I don't know if they're going to. They, they seem to have enough trouble passing uh, the medicinal law in the first place, so I don't, I think, I don't know if they're actually going to uh, amend it at all. Um, there has been, I've only was able to find one um, case uh, other than the, the uh, <coughs> um, um, the case about uh, the, the ex-criminal, ex-convict, um, and that case is, I think, was in your materials. It's Gordon versus Consolidated Edison. Um, <clears throat> the, actually, the, the main point of this case seems to be that the person, I don't think, had received their card uh, establishing that they were in the, um, in the program until uh, a couple of days before they were terminated. Um, but the court, when they had no problem finding, uh, it was actually a, on a motion to dismiss. Um, the consolidated Edison moved to dismiss the, the claim of violation of the public law 3369. <clears throat> and the court had no problem finding that um, 
that the person, even though it seems like they may have registered, uh, got their certification after they p tested positive, the court had no problem uh, letting their case for violation of the law continue. George, thank you. Let me just make a couple of points, picking up on a few things that George said. First of all, as far as what is likely to be in the cards for New York State for adult use, I think that in the coming legislative session there will be legislation introduced uh, to make adult use legal in New York State. I believe that that legislation will be passed. I believe it will be signed by the governor. And I believe that New York will have an adult use statute in place by the end of June of 2019. Typically, it takes 12 to 18 months in order for the regs to be developed and for the program to be rolled out. But I think that, um, that, that that's more likely than not. And I think that it bears watching um, how that that's going to play out. Um, George mentioned that um, opioid use was now a, a, a basis for um, a qualifying condition under the New York statute. That's serious stuff. There is good data that states that have implemented medical cannabis laws have statistically significant reductions in deaths from opioid abuse. Um, that, that's not data from High Times Magazine. That's peer-reviewed data. That's real stuff. And then finally, on the issue of um, the New York statute, under the New York regs, a registered organization, which is the, the statutory term for a company that is authorized to produce and distribute and sell medical cannabis, they're authorized to produce what is called five brands. And under the New York regs, a brand is primarily defined by the ratio of THC to CBD. THC and CBD are two of the major components of cannabis. THC is what produces the intoxicating effects. CBD does not, but there is strong evidence that it is good for things like PTSD. Basically, there is an inverse ratio between CBD and THC. The more CBD that there is in a plant, the less THC there is and vice versa. The New York State statute requires each of the registered organizations to offer one high CBD brand. And it's got to be a 20 to 1 ratio. That is 20 parts CBD to one part THC. The reason there's got to be one part THC is because the THC is thought to activate the CBD. I don't know what that means beyond what I've said, but I think <laughs> as a practical matter, the CBD doesn't work with a tiny amount, without a tiny amount of THC. What that means is, if you've got a high CBD brand, you're not getting high, but you might test positive. And so again, it behooves the employer to understand these things, and it behooves plaintiff's counsel as well as defense counsel to understand the nuances of the statute, because Cannabis is not cannabis is not cannabis, especially under the New York State statute. Some forms simply don't produce an intoxicating effect. And so if you got your basic understanding of this from Cheech and Chong records, it's time to kind of update your understanding. Um, one of the really big issues for employment lawyers is the interaction of cannabis laws 
and accommodations under state and federal disability laws. And Anne has spent a lot of time in her practice dealing with disability laws. And I'm going to ask her to talk a little bit about the issue of how disability laws interact with cannabis. Sure. So um, thank you. Uh, you know, I think we got a good preview of what may be coming in New York. But prior to this, there's kind of a general understanding from an employment perspective. There's a variety of ways that you might um, approach a litigation with an employee and defend yourself as an employer when you're talking about terminating or taking some sort of action against an employee who has tested positive. So up until very recently, um, and I think this kind of holds true across all the cases, you see this kind of um, out west, you know, you see a series of cases where it's really the courts are coming down on the side of the employer. There's really no protections for the employees. And that was true when we were talking about accommodation and disabilities. So one of the prime um, avenues for people, for employees to try to fight a termination is to argue that they are disabled and they are using marijuana as a way to treat their disability. And uh, employees are doing that under both the ADA as well as state laws. So there's a series of cases coming out of largely California um, where the courts essentially held that you, know, you weren't fired because you had a disability, you were fired because of how you treated that disability and therefore you had no job protections. Um, you know, then you see kind of a, a couple of cases previewing maybe where we're headed um, and I think this gets into where the Con Edison cases that just came out this year but in there's EEOC v. Pines of Clarkson which was in Michigan in 2015 and you see Coles v. Harris Teeter LLC which was coming out of DC and both of those cases um, the employees argue that they were terminated because they had disabilities and they were able to defeat the motions to dismiss and the summary judgment uh, motions respectively because they argued that even though um, they failed the drug test, the employer um, was aware of the disability and had terminated them because of the disability. And so part of their defense was, you know, other people have tested positive for marijuana. I tested positive for marijuana. Those people weren't fired. I was fired. Therefore, you terminated me because of my disability. Um, so, you know, from the employer perspective, we're, you know, document, 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 but um, you know, it was an, an interesting preview of kind of where the law might be headed. So then in 2017, we get a case out of Massachusetts called Barbudo v. Advantage Sales. And there you have a plaintiff who had Crohn's, she failed her drug test, and the court basically held that she was a qualified employee with a handicap, um, and that that was um, that that handicap was an exception to the employer's um, was, an, was an acceptable the employer needed to accommodate that and that that was an acceptable accommodation um, under the law that essentially the employer's drug test did not trump the need to provide that employee with an accommodation um, and the court specifically said that the employer had a duty to engage in the interactive process with the employee to determine whether there were any alternatives to marijuana. Um, and so, you know, I know we already discussed the Con Ed case, but there you kind of see a preview of what may be coming, I think, in New York. Um, the court there obviously didn't get to the point of actually analyzing whether or not um, Con Edison was required to engage in an interactive dialogue. Um, but it, I think, you know, 
it may end up there. We'll see. It's a case you should definitely be watching. Um, you know, I'd also like to just flag in New York City, as of October 15th, there is now under the New York City law an even um, kind of higher standard than the ADA or the New York State human rights law, which basically requires employers to engage in something called a cooperative dialogue with employees. So once you're on notice that an employee has a disability, you then have a duty to basically engage that employee in an interactive dialogue, which means you have to talk to them about you know, w without saying, you know, what's, if they haven't told you that they have a disability that they need to have accommodated, you're under an obligation to kind of go through a dialogue with them of, you know, what might you need some help in this? Um, is, is there an issue with job performance? Um, the employee may say to you, yes, I have, you know, I have this um, chronic pain, therefore I have a medical marijuana card. Um, and then you are required, if, if that employee has tested positive, you are required to undergo an actual discussion with that employee. And kind of the key kind of endpoint is besides going back and forth with the employee to see if you can find an accommodation that works, you're required as an employer to put that final decision in writing and provide it to the employee. So, um, you know, I think that's something to start thinking about from the employer perspective of really, you know, this isn't, um, this is not something that's going away. I think we're only going to see more and more cases, and it's something, you know, to really be thinking about before you take immediate action with an employee who has tested positive. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think in some ways it depends how it comes to your attention as the employer. You know, if it's something, you know, if, if an employee tests positive in a drug test, I think at that point you have, you're under, you know, no obligation. You can then have a dialogue with that employee. They failed a drug test. You're aware that they're smoking marijuana. They will likely tell you, I, you know, I'm registered. I have a medical marijuana card. And then you can engage, you know, in that dialogue. Um, if it's a suspicion, um, you know, you think that they may have a disability, I think um, then you're under, you know, a heightened standard in terms of what you can actually ask them about what's going on in their medical life. I mean, I think that's definitely if you are a manager and you're concerned about somebody's um, performance or you're concerned that there may be something going on. I mean, it's, there's such a gamut, but let's limit it to marijuana. Um, you know, you, the person's coming in with bloodshot eyes. Um, they're not getting assignments done on time. Um, they um, keep leaving and taking longer breaks than they're allowed to. You know, I would, I would recommend that a manager talk to someone in HR. Um, I think that the cooperative dialogue um, responsibilities are fairly sensitive, and I think that it's something that we're seeing quite, I mean, it, given that the law just went into effect, it's kind of exploded recently. 
Um, I feel like between the sexual harassment laws in New York that just passed and the cooperative dialogue, it's all we've been doing. Um, you know, I think that that's a point where I might have a manager not deal with it on their own, but I would recommend that they go to HR and have a conversation about how best to approach it. You know, I think in that situation, I would recommend that you really focus on performance issues that you can, you know, I continue, you know, you can document your concerns about marijuana, but if someone is having performance issues as an employer, um, I think that's a much stronger case than terminating someone because of potential marijuana use, especially given that there's no test right now where you can really know whether someone's impaired at work or if they're using in the evenings. And, you know, just in terms of the question about developing past uh, best practices, that's really a good idea, and employers should think about that, because here are the numbers. New York State has about 19 million people. Right now, the program is getting off the ground, and so there's about 55 or 60,000 certified patients. But states that have had programs for a little longer than New York State, they find that the number of patients uh, goes up. It's like a hockey stick, and at some point, the trend really goes up sharply. If New York were to get to 1% of the population being certified patients, which, which would be in line with other states, you would have 190 or 200,000 people who are certified patients. So that means that some of your clients are invariably going to have people working for them who are lawfully using cannabis under state law. So really, the, the time is now to develop best practices, and the time is now to, to hire someone like, like Answorm <laughs> to help you do that. Yeah, question in the back? So I think that that's a great question. I think that if I may rephrase it a little bit, the question is, can employers treat differently people in safety-sensitive jobs versus people in other jobs? And A, I think the New York statute is pretty clear that if you're in a job where, stat where, where testing is a federal requirement, you go ahead and test. New York can't override federal statutes. But B, the New York statute also makes it clear that, that intoxication impairment at work is still a basis to fire someone. And so I think that employers can be more careful in people with safety-sensitive jobs, and that, that reminds me of the Cotto case. And, and I don't know if you want to you spend a minute talking about the Cotto case, or George can... Oh, the Cotto case. So, I mean, what I found, this is the, uh, this is the case uh, in New Jersey, which was decided uh, just recently in August, um, in August 10th of 2018. Um, in New Jersey, they had the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination and the New Jersey Compassionate Use Medicinal Marijuana Act. Um, he worked as a forklift operator uh, and had back and shoulder problems. And the, the employer knew that he was disabled. He was disabled for a while, and he was able to drive a forklift. Um, however, he started um, using uh, he started using pot under the uh, New Jersey program instead of other painkillers, and I don't I'm not sure they say what what painkiller it was. Um, but here, um, unfortunately, the court and I think Anne had, had mentioned this. The court sort of looked to distinguish between the treatment for disability and the actual disability itself. Uh, and there were a couple things that I, the court sort of found meaningful. One was that the, the, um, the employer knew about the disability before and hadn't fired him or done anything about it. So it wasn't the disability itself 
that they, they apparently they were claiming he was being discriminated for. It was his treatment of the disability. Um, in the middle of the opinion on page four, the, the court goes into what I, I think is an, I don't know, it's an argument that I think will, will uh, move into the past, but it's been used very, very recently in the district court, and that is to say that a treatment can be problematic and you don't have to necessarily discriminate against a disabled person because they're using a treatment that is illegal. And so they make the point that, well, the dis you're not dis they weren't discriminating against uh, Cotto because of his back and shoulder problems because they had let him continue working with those problems. They were discriminating against because of the treatment he took. And they do kind of take it to an example, but if you think, well, if you're in pain and your treatment is to drink a lot of alcohol and you come to, 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 you know, to, to work because you're in pain and you're drinking alcohol, that, it, the court kind of seemed to view that as the same thing. And so it did not make the marijuana treatment equals a dis disability like the New York statute and some other courts have done. Um, and I, I mean, to me, it's an important case. One, it's in New Jersey, and it is uh, a, uh, it is a district court case. Most of the lot, awful lot of the cases we have are are um, state court cases. Um, even in the um, even in the world, the uh, the insular world of, of organized labor, to to um, build on the, on your question there about is the fact that an employee is holds a safety sensitive position is that going to matter? The the answer is yes. Um, but, you know, one of the distinctions which uh, Hannon spoke of earlier that differentiates between, you know, the alcohol test and the marijuana test, uh, you test positive for alcohol, it shows impairment. You test positive for marijuana, it shows that it's, that it's in your system. You could have smoked it or eaten the edibles, whatever, um, you know, the day before, the week before, even the month before. Um, in, in one arbitration uh, decision that came down, it's a published decision called uh, Wellington Industries, if anybody's interested, the site is 136LA. 1024, the arbitrator upheld the worker's dismissal. The, the worker, it was, it was some kind of, um, some kind of machine shop where they were, were, you know, pressing, you know, metal into parts that get sold to General Motors for, um, for cars. And the arbitrator recognized that the positive test itself didn't prove impairment. However, the operator of the machine did something incredibly wrong, let's say. Nobody got hurt, thankfully, but somebody could have gotten hurt. These are machines where, you know, something goes wrong. You might, you know, you might lose a finger or a hand. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, don't try this at home, kids type of machine. Um, so the arbitrator looked to see what some of, some of the other factors were. One, this was a long-term employee who knew how to operate the machine, and the mistake that he made was so elementary, it at least raised the inference that maybe he was under the influence. The test came out at uh, uh, 300 nanograms per milliliter, where the positive test generally is 15. So the arbitrator took that as an inference that maybe he had been under the um, that had been under the influence. And a third factor the arbitrator took into account was the worker admitted that he was a regular user, although he said he wasn't uh, wasn't ever doing it on the job. Uh, so I think that's even if you're not dealing with a, sen a safety sensitive. Uh, position. One of the things, I guess, for employers, I would say, uh, not that I'm the most qualified person to give advice to employers because I don't represent them, um, but look for the other telltale factors. Know that a positive test really might not do it because of the, the you know, the limitations on the on the testing. Um, look for the unsteady gait. Look for the, you know, the the, the eyes, the slow movements, uh, the smell, etc. 
Great. Um, be because we are lawyers, we're going to have some uh, hypotheticals. So hypothetical one, Herb Harris goes on vacation in Colorado, lawfully uses recreational cannabis. He returns to New York and tests positive. Does he have any job protections? And counsel for the employer? Uh, I would basically say no. He doesn't have any job protections. If he does not have a medical marijuana card in New York and he just went on vacation to Colorado and had fun with his buddies and smoked pot and came back and tested positive, um, you know, there's not a lot helping him. And it may be it, counsel for the employee. I'm going, to ch I'm going to chime in that, that if New York legalizes marijuana for recreational use and he goes to upstate New York and gets stoned, uh, it still may turn out the same. Because he's not, if he's not a certified uh, medicinal marijuana user. And Jay, counsel for the union? Um, I would hope that uh, Mr. Harris here is a uh, member of a union because he'd have a much better shot with a labor arbitrator <laughs> than he would in court. Great. And then uh, let me just change the facts a little bit. After he tests positive, but before the employer takes any action, he becomes a certified patient under the New York State statute. Does this change his level of protections? Ann? Yeah, I mean, I think that's directly going to the Con Edison case. And the question is, did the employer know about the disability before terminating him? Um, and if they did, then he may have some job protections. George? I agree with Ann. I think that follows the case pretty, pretty uh, closely. I, I think it's a better idea to get your card sooner. Uh, it's a better idea to get your card sooner rather than later, would Jay? be my comment. Um, in this one, I would say if, the, if this individual was before most arbitrators, and this is just, I guess, me having you know, more of a jaundiced view, um, I think many arbitrators would raise one eyebrow halfway up the forehead and say, this guy is an unbelievable BSer. So, and I guess let me ask one other question. Kind of, given the popularity of cannabis, cannabis among smart 24-year-olds and the tight unemployment market, does it make sense for employers to screen out people based on off-duty use of cannabis? Is, is that a good HR strategy or a bad HR strategy? Will that make your company more popular with smart 23-year-olds or less popular? And in light of today's job market, does it make sense? I don't know if any, you know, I don't know if, if any of your HR yeah, director you clients think? have thought about that, but. Definitely. I mean, I think we've been getting questions about, you know, I, I think especially in certain states, Colorado being one of them, um, certain industries are having a hard time actually finding people who don't test positive for marijuana. And so I think employers are starting to really think through, um, do I have a real basis or a real need to have a drug tests or a drug policy? Um, do, you know, is there a safety concern? Um, is, there some, is there some other valid reason? Do I do work with the federal government that puts me at risk? Um, and if they don't have those valid concerns, you know, they may start kind of backing off of including marijuana in their drug testing policy or may exclude it from um, the drug testing policy. I mean, if you think about the workplace of today is not the workplace of 1979. You know, if you walk into a modern workplace in downtown New York, you know, there, there's ping pong tables and cappuccino machines and employers are doing things to try to attract smart young people and smart young people smoke weed. And so, again, you've got to balance your desire to have a non-impaired workforce with your desire to hire the best and the brightest. And so I think that on a going forward basis, it's going to make sense for 
people in HR to think hard about what policies they want to implement and why it makes sense to implement those policies. Yes? Does HERB have any help under the New York Legal Activities Law? Uh, putting aside the cases that have said, categories that have said that those are preempted, uh, if we you know, take the first example, the law fully uses marijuana in Colorado, comes back to New York and where the other folks, you know, square days or drug days, he fails. Fantastic question, um, thank you. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, about 25 years ago, New York passed a statute which protected lawful off-duty conduct. There was a wave of those statutes that were passed about 25 years ago. Interestingly, they were mostly passed at the behest of cigarette companies, which didn't want their customers to get fired for smoking cigarettes. But the statute is on the books, and it basically says you can't get fired for lawful off-duty conduct. And the question is, would the New York State courts adopt the same position that the Colorado courts adopted, which is lawful means lawful under both state and federal law? I don't know the answer. I think that that is a, uh, it's a sadly underused statute. Um, and I wish that there was a decision, because if there was, it would be something we would talk about at this panel. But I, I genuinely don't know the answer, and, I, and I, I await that decision. But it's a legitimate question. And of course, the employee can say, I had a reasonable expectation that I would not be fired because I was following this statute. And so who knows how that would play out. At the very least, it would give a plaintiff's lawyer um, kind of a leg up. I don't know, George. Something. Since, well, since I, you're our plaintiff's lawyer. <laughs> I just would mention that, I, that I, I know in some of the earlier, several of the Western cases, they had those statutes. And they didn't save anybody. I think in the uh, in the uh, Michigan case in the unemployment, uh, the the statute did uh, the statute in that case, which I think was worded a little differently, did preserve the persons they weren't denied unemployment benefits because of their lawful activity. But I, I think that I think that that courts t tend to make a distinction between lawful activity and what you can do, you know, related to work. Um, to me, I, I think that probably the easier thing to do is to, uh, my understanding is in New York is that the liquor companies are probably going to get licenses to smell, sell marijuana, and so that you, employers might treat it the same way they treat alcohol, which is they don't test for it, but if you come in smelling like liquor and injure yourself and bumble around the same way you can with pot, it's not, I, I don't know that the effect is so different. Either you're spacing out or you're passed out. It, do, it doesn't really matter. You're not getting any work done. Um, I think that the, the policies from one can certainly be applied to the other when it's legalized. On, on the other hand, that doesn't stop, <clears throat> it doesn't stop an employer from, from testing you and, 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 and firing you necessarily. Um, I would just add, I think as long as your employer has a clear po drug testing policy um, on the books and you've been made aware of it in advance of being drug tested, I think the employer would have a much stronger case, um, irrespective of whether you did it legally in another state. Well, in, in Michigan, just to you know, just to be clear, that that one that state had, I guess the you know the broadest lawful activity statute, but it said um, specifically that the individual quote shall not be subject to arrest, prosecution, or penalty in any manner, or denied any right or privilege, and the court took that to mean. 
that you know, the right to collect unemployment insurance because it's a decision by the state saying that because of your use of medical marijuana, denying you unemployment would be a penalty. Um, now, one of the things that I recall that did Coates in was when they were wrestling with the lawful activity statute in Colorado, the legislative history suggested that it was not supposed to be limited to only lawful uh, Colorado laws, but under any laws. Now, I'm not sure what the legislative history of the New York law is, but that was one of the, one of the tipping points in, in Coates in Colorado, is the legislative history. Let's turn to our second hypothetical, and it's, it's a variation. Um, our, our friend Henry Hemp comes to work and brags to co-workers about getting a medical marijuana registration card. Does he have any job protections? Anne? Um, well, he sounds like he might in New York, um, TBD, depending on where the case law goes. But um, I would say this at least at a minimum if the employer learns about him bragging about the medical marijuana card really you know, puts them on notice that they need to, that he has a disability and they need to engage in that cooperative dialogue. Um, you know, again, though, there's nothing in New York that says you can be high at work. Um, so I think the employer can then be on kind of high alert to look out for some of those signs we just discussed um, and be sure that they, you know, are documenting those. And I don't mean to pick on you, but if we just change the facts a little, <laughs> a couple of months later, a coworker reports seeing him smoking pot in the car in the parking lot, and the HR director calls you and describes these facts to you, what do you do? Well, I think if I was the HR director, the first thing I'd do is call the employee who witnessed this into my office and have a very clear discussion about how they knew it was marijuana, because I'd want to be very sure my facts were correct. Um, you know, but then I would bring the employee into my office and have a conversation and say, you know, you were, witness you know, you were seen doing this. Um, you know, I... I Look, I think employees um, may lie. I think if you have a marijuana card in New York, you might tell the truth. Um, and, um, you know, if the person swears up and down, I wasn't doing this, I think that creates a very difficult challenge for the HR person. Um, and then I might call my lawyer. See, my comment is, is I don't know, is any different than if someone is seen, uh, I wouldn't say drinking a beer, but say doing shots in their car, if they're drinking alcohol in the middle of the day. I mean, it might I think, be a similar reaction. Yeah, I mean, but like if I, if I, you know, if someone called me and said, you know, I just had a client or I had an employee come into my office, um, you know, he was seen drinking, taking shots out in the parking lot, and then he showed up for work and tried to keep working, I would say we have a real <laughs> issue here. I mean, obviously, again, it depends what your alcohol and drug policy is in the workplace, but the vast majority of employers do have a drug and alcohol policy in their handbooks at this point. Sure. Yeah. We Mm. That's a really concerted action. That, that, that's an interesting one. I would, pro I, would, I would probably say it depends on, I'm not sure which one of those fellows around the water cooler is Henry Hemp, but I'd be curious to know what some of the others said in response to his initial uh, trial balloon here. Um, I would say if, they said, if he said what he said and then uh, the rest of them walked away, uh, probably not. But if they started engaging in uh, dialogue here and saying stuff like, you know what, they, they drug test here? Why the heck would they do something like that? This has nothing to do with, uh, with our work. You know, we need to talk to our labor relations. Then maybe. Um, that's interesting. What if employers band together to urge their, employees band together to urge their employer to respect people with medical marijuana certifications? Protected concerted activity under the act? I would think so, yes. So that Somebody will file that first ULP and we'll see how Region 2 reacts to it. 
Um, yeah, question? So just to reverse the cards a little bit, have companies been held liable? So if this situation happens, we see Henry have outdoor smoking and then he goes in and there's a serious accident, he names another employee, or there's a safety incident, and so then somebody says, you knew something potentially could have been happening, you didn't stop the employee or send them home or send them for a drug test, so just reverse the I haven't seen any cases. I mean, I think as an employer, <clears throat> um, I think if someone came to you and said, you know, this person's very high and it was obvious and there was an issue, you'd probably take action and, ask, you know, have a discussion with the person, at least maybe send them home on a paid leave for that day. Um, I don't know. Have you guys seen anything? Uh, I haven't seen that. I think that, that your risk wouldn't be high with a coworker because a coworker's remedy is would almost certainly be limited to workers' comp. But if the person hurt a customer or a visitor or somebody else, there might be greater risk. Um, the other thing about Henry who was in the car is it's worthwhile if you're counseling employers to be familiar with the nuances of the state program. Under the state program, smoking is not a permissible form of consumption. So if someone is yes. smoking in the car, they are not doing it in compliance with state law. So, so again, it, 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 it's, you don't have to know every bit, but, but it's worth knowing a little bit. Um, next hypothetical. Uh, Kelly Cush has been showing up at work with red eyes, forgetting her assignments, and has been smelling of marijuana. Her employer does not have a drug testing policy. What can the employer do? And? So in New York, there's no drug testing laws that require you to have a drug testing policy on the books. So if you have, you know, if there's um, a solid basis for <coughs> believing that Kelly Cush has been showing up to work high, um, you can require her to go get drug tested. Um, there are laws, however, regarding where she can get drug tested. You can't do it in the office. She needs to go to a certified facility. Um, you know, I also think you could just sit down with Kelly Cush as your HR director and have a frank conversation about your concerns. Um, I think this goes back to my earlier comment about, um, you know, if someone is performing poorly, having to do with the work aspects, um, as, as an employer, um, I would recommend that you really focus on documenting those kind of performance shortcomings. I think that you would have a lot less um, risk terminating someone based on performance, then you might getting into the weeds on whether or not they're coming to work high, given that there's just not, at this point, a really solid test to, to prove that. It's much better to look at, at least from the plaintiff's point of view, if you see that someone's poor performance has been documented. I haven't had a client who's admitted to being stoned and doing badly. Um, but I have had a couple clients who, when I said, well, your review says, you know, you missed a few days and, you know, you, you weren't around and you did this and that. And they kind of sometimes are forced to admit that the performance things are true. And if the performance is bad, it kind of doesn't really matter what the excuse is. Um, and if your, your client says, well, you know, I'm a medicinal marijuana user, I'm like, well, if you're using it at night, what's the problem during the day? Um, and I agree that performance is in a much more objective standard that you can, you know, look at, you know, talk to people about. And then, Jay, just let's assume for the moment that that's a unionized workforce and there is no drug testing policy and you are the union lawyer and the rep calls you and tells you that all of a sudden 
they're going to start to implement a drug testing policy for their employees. How do you react? I would fire off a strongly worded letter saying that <laughs> that is a mandatory subject of collective bargaining and, and uh, demand that they cease and desist from implementing anything without first bargaining with the union. Right. There was a, a board case from about 1988, I think it was the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune case, that held that um, pre-employment drug testing is a non-mandatory subject, but drug testing for people who have already been hired is a mandatory subject. So if you've got a unionized workforce, it's better if you avoid having the ULP and either negotiate for something or figure out what you're going to do before you unilaterally implement a drug test for your employees. Uh, I think we've got another hypothetical. Mary Jane has become addicted to medical marijuana and, and, and has entered rehab. She asks her employer for time off. I'm going to change it up a little bit. Before she does that, George, she calls you and says, what are my rights? Um, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Well, um, I don't know if the, um, I mean, the, the, my question is, is she eligible for Family Medical Leave, Me Medical Leave Act for addiction to medicinal marijuana? And I would think, I mean, I, I guess under the New York law, because you've been, if you qualify as a certified patient, it's because you are disabled. I think that if you're disabled, that qualifies you for Family Medical Leave Act. So I believe, and I'm it's a little off the top of my head, Anne, can you contradict yeah, me? No. <laughs> for help. Um, no, I think we're on the same page. I think I would, I would call my lawyer, um, and if I was your lawyer, I'd look into this much more carefully. Um, but I do think you may have FMLA protections. I think there are some um, caveats about how long, I think there's um, some rule about how long, like you can't decide, you know, I smoked a joint yesterday and I'm addicted to marijuana and tomorrow I'm going into rehab. I think there's a time period requirement potentially about job protections having to mm -hmm. go, having to do with um, rehab, but I'm not, I'd have to look at that a little bit more carefully. But I'd at least be cautious if I was the employer before I took any action. I mean, I think under the FMLA, you've got to have 1,200 hours worked in yeah. the year leading up to the point where you seek the time off. But assuming that the person had that, I guess my question might be, if you're the employer, what's the downside to giving the person a chance to Absolutely. kick their self-admitted addiction? Again, you know, as a matter of HR, whatever the law is, sometimes employers make decisions that aren't strictly, you know, they, they provide their employees with things above and beyond what the law requires as a matter Absolutely. of good HR, because sometimes you value your employees and, and, and you want to help them. And so th well, those are things yeah. to take into account. And if an employee comes to you as an employer and says, you know, I have an addiction and I want to get better, you know, as an employer, you know, your first thought is, well, how do I get a better employee? If someone's saying, I want to get better, great. Um, you know, I think the key there, though, is that she then needs to actually go to rehab. Um, you don't get to take your FMLA leave and then sit around and smoke a bunch of joints. I think we can all agree on that. Um, <laughs> next hypothetical. Nick Nugget is a machine operator at a factory in New York State. He discloses to his employer that he is using medical marijuana to treat his PTSD. What should the employer do? And I will note here that my sense is, is that a PTSD diagnosis would most likely result in 
of certification for of high CBD cannabis because high CBD is what is used to, to treat PTSD. So, but Nick comes, Nick, Nick tells the employer and the employer calls the lawyer and that's you, Ann, and so what would you say? <laughs> um, wow, I'm really busy. It's um, <laughs> a lot of billable hours well, I'm getting all- here. <laughs> Um, So I would say, you know, the first thing would be the employer needs to engage in the interactive dialogue. So, um, you know, I would talk to him about, you know, when is he using, um, if it's only at night, um, you know, talk to him about kind of, um, or think through whether there's an alternative position, if there's real safety concerns in his position, is there a position you can move him into that might not have the same safety risks um, when you're looking at accommodations. you know, one of the factors that employers can look at is whether there is direct threat to safety. Um, One's own safety has a kind of lower bar than the safety to others. So thinking through, you know, can we put him into, I don't want to say like his safety doesn't matter, but um, you know, there's a greater risk if you're talking about someone who's putting a bunch of employees at risk as opposed to potentially just himself. yeah. Anyone else? I know. I know. Uh, if he called me and, and and I'd say what you know, I'd be interested. In what is the machine? Mm-hmm. And what happens if you if you press the wrong button? What happens? Because yeah. if you're representing someone and they come in and tell you this, you also don't want your. I'm more concerned about my own client not injuring himself, but also if your client injures someone else, that that tends to get them fired. You know, yeah. that clearly is a safety risk. Um, and I think that the New York statute definitely uh, addresses this. Uh, and I don't know, I, I would probably tell Nick to, I don't, uh, I think PTSD is, is, one of the, uh, is one of the covered things. I tell him to get his certification before he discloses it to his employer. Now, I want to add something to this, that Nick sort of discloses it unwill, un, unwillingly to his employer and doesn't have, hasn't gotten his card, um, which is a different thing. But I think this, I think, points out more the safety issue. And I, I, again, I think that if an employee calls you, I think what you've got to say is go get your certificate. Go, go, get, go to your doctor. Comply with the statute. Find a doctor who will treat you. Because actually, originally it was hard for people to find doctors. Not every doctor was authorized under the statute to issue a certification. They had to take a, a two to four hour doctor version of CLE. They had to take a CME. Um, doctors actually don't like to do that. For a long time, there was no publicly available list of doctors who were authorized under the statute. Finally, the Department of Health made one available. Um, apparently, there was a concern that people didn't want to be on the list because they didn't want to be known as pot docs. The, st- the statute now addresses that. You're, you're, uh, you're on the list of pot docs unless, you be, unless you're asked to be taken off. Right, but, but for a long time- There, there were very no, few. Right, for a long time, there was no such list. And actually, depending on where you are, um, it, it's still hard to find people. It's getting better, but, but, but it's not something that you can necessarily do in a day. And under the New York State statute, um, that visit is often not covered by insurance and doesn't have to be covered by insurance. And under the New York State statute, the, 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 the medical cannabis itself is not covered by insurance. And people find that it is relatively expensive and because of the stringent regulations and because of the extensive investments which the registered organizations had to make, their product is often more expensive than product that one buys um, 
in a different marketplace. And so there are temptations for people to not continue their, 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 their use in the program. So if you're a lawyer and you're advising an individual employee, you've got to steer them to comply with the statute. I think it's, it's going to be a pretty slow process. I have a friend of mine who unfortunately, and that, uh, this is what brings to me the, the, the seriousness of some of these conditions, she, it took her nine months to get a, a, a fine, get her doctor to say you can, you know, pot would help you with your pain from chemotherapy. Then she had to find a registered doctor. If I remember correctly, it took her a couple months to get an appointment with a doctor who was registered who was also an oncologist. Because obviously to, to, to prescribe pot for someone with a condition, you have to be a doctor who knows something about the condition. You can't just, you know, it's just like any doctor can do it. And it took her quite a long time to get it. And if you have, and if you're waiting to be tested positive and you think you're going to run out and get your certificate, uh, quickly, I don't think it works that way. In the in the Gordon case, I think this person had probably been working on getting their certificate for some time, and they were just fortunate enough to get it at the right at the very last minute, basically. Right, and, and you know, kind of statutes are always written in reaction to other things, and so I think that the New York State statute was written in reaction to the way it was in California, where it was the Wild West, and and I don't know if any of you have visited friends in California but some of them have cards. And it's easy to get a card in California. There's, there's physicians on Venice Beach who will give you a card for 100 bucks and, and you're good. And I think that the New York State statute was intentionally written very stringently so that New York State would not become like California. I, I think that the view of people who wrote the New York State legislation was that the California statute kind of made a mockery of it and that we in New York are gonna take it seriously the New York statute was probably most closely modeled after the Minnesota statute, which similarly kind of is relatively restrictive. Now, the flip side of that is if you're, if you're in the industry is you don't have that many patients. And of course, if you're an operator in the industry, you say, we had to make extensive investments to comply with your regulations. You need to allow us to have enough patients so that we can you know, get a return on our investment. So I'm going to do one more hypothetical that I'm going to turn to Jay on. Uh -oh. And um, we're going to jump forward. It is July 7th of 2020. The New Jersey statute had been passed and goes into effect. And my person here is Buddy Green. He's an ambulance driver for the city of New York. And he spends 4th of July on LBI. And if you're not from New Jersey, that's Long Beach Island. He visits a dispensary that operates lawfully under the statute, and he buys cannabis and consumes it lawfully under the New Jersey statute because he's on the Jersey Shore. And because this is 2020, he posts a selfie on Facebook holding up the bag. And he doesn't have very careful privacy settings so everybody can see his page. He's got lots of friends, including some local politicians. And for purposes of this hypothetical, you should assume that he last consumed on Saturday at 11 p.m. He goes home on Sunday, spends a lot of time in traffic, but does not consume. Goes to work on Monday, works his normal 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift, spends lots of time doing runs on the BQE, comes back to the garage, and his supervisor, Peter Black, told him about the selfie and told him to take a test. The CBA permits drug testing, but is silent about off-duty conduct. He tests positive and he is fired. 
and he's got a clean tenured record. His co-workers will testify that during the day he drove normally, that he didn't smell of cannabis, and there was no indication he was impaired. The chief of his ambulance operation will testify that local politicians called to complain about the Facebook post and said, basically, if you're going to have potheads working there, we're not going to fund what you need. So, Jay, you are the lawyer handling the arbitration. What do you argue? And what do you think the arbitrator is going to say? How do you think that the employer will argue? And how are you going to deal with that? So I was just about to ask, whose side am I on? You're on all the sides. Apparently, I'm, all, I'm on all the sides. Um, well, I mean, for, first, um, be, you know, because it's closer to home for me, um, if I'm representing the union in a case like this, I would point to the fact that he has a clean record over 10 years, that there is absolutely no evidence that he was impaired while he was on the job, notwithstanding the, um, the positive test for the, for the reasons that we discussed, um, that all the other indicators of impairment were not there. Um, his coworkers would testify that during the day he drove normally, he didn't smell of cannabis, and you know, gave, um, you know, gave no indication of being impaired. Um, what's the employer going to argue? The employer is going to argue that, hey, um, we drive ambulances, we transport sick people. We cannot take a chance. We can't take a chance. If, there's any, if there is a safety-sensitive position out there, this is it. Oh, and by the way, um, your typical test for whether an employee can be disciplined in a you know, under collective bargaining agreement just cause provision for off-duty conduct includes whether continuing to employ this individual would damage the company's reputation. And I think given the fact pattern here, the employer would argue that, yes, the company's reputation was damaged. Um, and if we continue to employ this individual, um, it would probably be damaged further. What would an arbitrator do? Tell me who's on my list of arbitrators, and I'll tell you, this one would uphold the dismissal, and this one <laughs> probably wouldn't. Um, one arbitrator out in, um, in California in a, very, in a very similar case, it was called City of Oakland Park. The site is 133 LA 929, found that there is a connection or a nexus between this person's off-duty drug use and the job in view of the safety-sensitive position and the risk that the public could lose confidence in the, in this case, the municipal fire department's ability to serve the public by employing um, paramedics and EMTs. Um, but there are other arbitrators who might say that, hey, this person is a long-term employee with a clean record. The arbitrator might be interested in whether it was a true zero-tolerance policy that says if you test positive, you will be fired. Uh, many employer policies, I think for a very good reason, allow for some play in the joints. They say, well, if you, do, if you commit this infraction, the penalty will be, you know, can be up to and including dismissal. Now, when I read a policy like that, I see that there, you know, that there is some play in the joints, that there might be exceptions, mitigating factors might be taken into consideration. Um, so I think some arbitrators might say, you know what, I'm going to reinstate this individual without back pay. There's no doubt that he did something bad, but he's got 10 years clean record and there wasn't actual proof of impairment. And some other arbitrators might say, because there is no proof of impairment, the person is going to be reinstated and made whole. Well, is this a, one of the things I was, is this a, is this a public employer or a private ambulance company? Um, 
Answer with both. Answer with both. Um, look, if it's if it's a um, look if it's a, if it's a public if it's a public employer, the arbitrator, if he if he or she is worth his or her salt, will look at the. Uh, you know, the conic pickering test and see whether the you know statements had you know so I, I don't remember it's been some years that I've looked at that but definitely we'll have probably scrutinized the the activities a little bit more um, if it's a private employer I think it's just going to be that straight nexus test where well you know could the you know is there enough of a connection between the employee the employees and let's assume off-duty conduct because it happened um, you know when uh, he was on an LBI um, and he was, by all accounts, the evidence showed that he was not impaired on the job, um, but did it damage the company's reputation? Um, I think as far as the Facebook post, and I, you know, I've had this case a hundred times where somebody gets in trouble for something stupid that they put on Facebook and they try arguing that, hey, wait a minute, this is protected concerted activity. Uh, I'm not so sure this is, just posting a, you know, a, a selfie or whatever it is, uh, that's what that's what the kids call right selfie or something. About it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure I see anything concerted there. And yeah, I, and, and the, yeah, there, there's no way you would get a, a complaint issued on that. That that's certainly not. So, so certainly certainly not in regions two or twenty nine. Um, but yeah, I, I think that even you know whether it's public or private, I think what the what an arbitrator would likely look at is you know did this have enough of a deleterious impact on the employers. Business reputation, such that we can uphold the termination, even in the absence of any impairment. Um, some would say yes, some would say no. It's a real crapshoot. I would say my well, the champagne glass on New Year's Eve is, is one thing, but you know, holding up a beer bottle on LBI and acting like an idiot. I think if you post that on uh, Facebook, the employer might scrutinize you just the same, especially if they decide, hey, you know what, this was posted, um, you know, this morning at 2:30 a.m. How do I know this guy didn't stop drinking in time to get it all out of his system by his 6:30 a.m. Uh, start time? So maybe you know, maybe they send them for a test there. But again, that's alcohol; it can be proven with the test, unlike unlike. Um, um, marijuana. I guess one of the lessons is is to have your privacy settings be set to maximize privacy. But what if your friend posts the photo? I've actually had that happen with a friend of mine who had a friend post a photo that he didn't want. Well, you know, what, the employee is being as discreet as possible, but sometimes your friends are not as discreet as you wish they would be. So. Well, I know that I don't remember the name of the case off the top of my head, but there was a, a really big one in New York City involving a teacher, probably about four or five years ago, where the the individual who said or did the untoward thing did not post it on social media, but somebody else did, um, and that teacher wound up going through the whole process. I think ultimately didn't lose her uh, job over it, um, but there have been other cases that have gone the other way. So. I think we have time for a couple of questions. If anyone has any questions, we have one more. Uh, ah, or should we do one more hypo? Yeah. Okay, we'll do one more hypo. This is another forklift. Um, I have some advice for Charles. But Charles B. <laughs> Driver is a forklift operator in New York, and he is a relatively new employee. He, he was hired in mid 2017. He does not have a great record. In December of 2017, he was written up for lateness. In March of 2018, he got a one-day suspension for coming back late for lunch. And in July of 2018, he was given a written warning for damaging a truck, and he is not represented by a union. 
In November of 2018, he backs a forklift into a pallet full of expensive equipment and destroys it. His supervisor demands that he takes a drug test and he tests positive for cannabis. After receiving the results of the test, she tells him that she is suspending him pending an investigation. The next day, she gets a letter from his attorney. The letter advises her that he is a certified patient in a New York State medical cannabis program, attaches a photocopy of his state-issued registry certification card, and states that he lawfully consumes high CBD, low THC medical cannabis purchased from a dispensary. Um, and you're he up calls first. you. No, oh, no, you wanted this. Okay. Yeah, he calls <laughs> you. Okay. What do you say? He calls me. Well, <clears throat> the first thing I might ask Charles Driver is how much he likes driving a forklift. <clears throat> because to me, this is a, uh, it's not the equipment, the expensive equipment. It's when you back over some person that it's a problem. And to me, this is a little bit of a warning sign for Charles that maybe driving the forklift is not the best thing for him. Now, on the other hand, I may tell him, well, you know, just because you're having trouble with the forklift doesn't mean you should give up your job. You should, I'll write them a letter asking for an accommodation because you're a, you know, you're a disabled person. Now, I'm assuming that he is part of the, oh, he is part of the, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the medicinal cannabis program. Right. But I would probably then tell him, well, I'll, you know, I'll see what I could do. I'll write the company a letter. And, you know, to me, maybe... Maybe unless he's really uh, devoted to, to forklift driving, he might get a different job uh, that is appropriate for his situation at the, at the company. And, and if the uh, company's outside counsel called you because of your expertise in this area, how might you respond? Well, I think the first thing I would um, recommend is potentially terminating him based on his performance. I hope that they gave him like a last chance warning um, before this. <laughs> But, um, you know, I think backing into a pallet full of expensive equipment, um, you know, depending on, um, depending on the situation, depending on how frequently the employer might terminate someone for that behavior alone, um, kind of outside of that, I'd go back to, I think, some of, the, some of what was discussed earlier about really looking carefully um, or having the employer look carefully at how, um, whether there were signs that suggest he was actually high at the time the accident occurred. Is he, um, I think Jay had mentioned this, is he someone who's familiar with how a forklift works? Has he ever had forklift accidents before? Um, did anybody else, did any other employees notice anything you know, off that day? Was he coming in late? Did he smell like marijuana? I might do kind of an internal investigation before I take any further action. And part of me, the saving grace for Charles is that his other infractions are not, I, I, assuming that damaging a truck is not, he didn't drive into it. Um, if, he'd, if he'd done this, you know, from the employer's point of view, if this has happened before, I think it would be taken much more seriously. But I, I do see a little bit of a, a safety issue here with somebody, you know, driving the thing around and smashing into something. As I said, you know, not too worried about the equipment, but, you know, what if you run over a person? Jay, um, can you jump in? Yeah, I mean, if I mean, if this type of case was being judged under a um, a just cause standard, I think the facts are similar to the to this uh, decision that I mentioned earlier, Wellington Industries, where the arbitrator considered the totality of all the circumstances, which included the the actual test result. Um, the test result in that case came up um, 300 nanograms per milliliter, where the you know where you're deemed to have uh, a discernible amount in your system at 15. Um, that might be a factor. Um, 
backing a forklift into a pallet full of expensive equipment, how routine is that? I mean, is this one of these things where, um, you know, I, I've been told that on some of the newer cars that you don't have like a lever for the transmission, you have a button. Is it easy to go in reverse by accident? Is this something that happens commonly? Or are we in a situation like, um, like in the Wellington Industries case that I spoke about where the, um, the machinist was performing a very, 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 very routine aspect of operating the machine and screwed it up and, you know, and caused uh, you know, the machine to malfunction, which could have caused somebody to be uh, dismembered. I'd also be interested to know if Charles was a, you know, was, what did he say? Did he say, yes, I ingest this, uh, this high CBD, low THC every night? And, and, and again, he does say it's the high CBD, low THC, which doesn't mean it's going to be undetectable in the standard um, urinalysis tox screen, but if the number came up as, um, as 300 nanograms per milliliter, you might start to question whether Charles is telling the truth. If it came up as 18 rather than 15, you know, then maybe, maybe he is telling the truth. And if the, you know, this type of accident is not something that's terribly uncommon because forklifts sometimes go in reverse by accident, um, then maybe the outcome would be different. But I think it would depend on all the circumstances. Yeah, actually, I think this is a pretty easy case. The statute protects lawful use, it doesn't protect you from the adverse consequences of bad work performance. And a short-term employee who's got a record of progressive discipline and who makes a serious mistake on the job, I think is at risk for termination, um, regardless of whether they are consuming pursuant to the statute. I, I think that, that this is not kind of an intoxication case. I think this is really bad work performance, and I suspect that this would not be an employee who would who would have a strong case uh, if, if push came to shove. Um, so thank you guys. Any questions here? So I'm assuming, no, but is there, is there any um, duty on the To my knowledge, no, and I think that there are some of the qualifying conditions are things that people might not want to disclose. Right. So that, I mean, that was my assumption. And I think and there's also some HIPAA issues. Well, just, yeah, just yeah. Not, not saying why, but just yeah. say I, I have it. And then, you know, if Charles P. Driver then says, yes, I have this, and actually the amount maybe is not as it's described, but I might be under the influence during my day, and now I'm asking for an accommodation. Does that, where did, how did the employer respond? I don't think that the law requires an employer to allow someone who is impaired to go to work. So I think that, that the employer certainly doesn't have a duty to say, I will allow you to work impaired. Perhaps the employer says, if you're going to be impaired between 6 a.m. and 11 a.m., you can start at 11 a.m. or quarter after 11. But the law does not require the employer to allow you to come to work impaired. Yeah, yeah, there's no, that, that, that's, I mean, yeah. no, that, that, that's beyond yeah. the accommodation duty. That's, that's I mean, my understanding, and I'm not totally up on this, is that um, for, some, for some conditions, um, you, you, you want to consume it in the morning so that you have it the rest of the day. But I don't know that, I'm sorry, I don't know that much about it. That's obviously more difficult, you know, if you're, if you're taking your pills at 6 in the morning. You know. Just in this, like, the fourth says, well, then, hey, is there a job where I can just answer phones all day? 
Right. Well, that's a, as his lawyer. That's my, what I would yeah. be pushing. And I say, you know, it's not only that he's that he has the the issue with, you know, that he's that he's using the medicinal marijuana, but he doesn't seem that good at driving a forklift in the first place. And believe it or not, if your employer lawyer, put this way, if your employment lawyer, <laughs> if your employment lawyer and someone comes in and they talk to you a lot and you kind of get the drift that that they're not that good at the job is one of their problems. You, you tend to kind of try to tell them that. Don't let them, you know, cause, oh, you're going to be a great forklift driver. You know, you just need to take a, about two years of courses. Um, sorry. Can I, I don't know, can I, can I comment on that? <clears throat> in my view, and it's, it's probably a little bit biased and based on my experience, but the people who, people who are going to buy legalized marijuana, they're not gonna, it's not like everyone's going to start smoking pot. These people already smoke pot, and they're just going to go from buying it from someone on the street corner to, to buying it legally. And honestly, in a lot of these states, people, some people don't ever buy it legally. They continue buying illegal marijuana that's not... That's not, you know, that's not produced under the state licensing system. So I don't know actually in the sort of the practical view of things whether if marijuana becomes legal in New York, the people who are got to worry about drug testing now when it's illegal, they're going to have to worry about it when it's legal. Um, I don't know if, I mean, I think employers have been on the drug thing in a big way for, you know, quite a long time. Um, I mean, to me, and I don't know, I mean, Ann may know this better, that, that sometimes I, I do have employees that come in, clients that come in sometimes, and, you know, their company does not really use rigorous drug testing. Um, and, I, you know, kind of sometimes, personally, I wonder why, even though it wouldn't necessarily help um, uh, my employee. But I don't know if, if pot becomes legal, I don't think that more companies are going to test for it, because it's legal. I think that and sort of talk a little bit that it's possible that fewer will test for it and decided that it's like alcohol and that it's not as long as you can do your job they don't care what you're doing at night yeah I mean my sense is is that impairment on the job if demonstrated is almost always going to lead you to getting fired that no matter was, whether it's legal or whether you're using is legal or not right listen th that was the law with alcohol and it's the law with cannabis I think that to the extent that more and more the societal view is that can't that there's nothing inherently wrong with cannabis consumption, employers are going to be less and less interested in expending the resources necessary to do drug testing unrelated to performance because 
it costs money, it takes up time, it hinders your ability to recruit the best and the brightest, and it doesn't advance the interest of the employer. So I think that, that, that that's where we're going to go. But um, come back in a year from now when New York's got a legal statute and we'll, we'll talk about it again. <laughs>